to us. Uh, before we look at this conversation together, let me, let me lead us in prayer. Uh, Lord, again, on this uh, 4th of July weekend, uh, we just want to say thank you uh, that we have the freedom to gather like this. Uh, that's not true everywhere in our world. And so we're grateful for that. Help us not to take it for granted. And uh, we pray now as we uh, open our Bibles and, and, and listen uh, that you would help us to listen well. And what we hear, we pray that you would help us to understand with our minds. And what we've understood with our minds, we pray it would find its way into our hearts uh, where it can uh, do its uh, incredible work of transforming us. Uh, we, we pray that you would do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Everyone, if, if you don't know this, uh, and sometimes I think that we forget this, but everyone, every, every person experiences brokenness in their lives. Um, loss of, of any kind can do it. Uh, death, uh, divorce, broken relationships, uh, lost job, um, Many times just our own sinful choices uh, do it. And, and sometimes that uh, brokenness can, can feel or even be catastrophic. Maybe as catastrophic as the uh, Titan submersible that, that imploded a couple of weeks ago. Uh, certain precautions are not adhered to and, and the result is fatal. Uh, but, but even if the failure is not fatal, sometimes the, the debris field, you know, it feels like it just goes on and on and on forever. Uh, Vernon Grounds, some of you may know that name. He was president of, of Den Denver Seminary. He, he once asked this question. When, for whatever reasons, your personal world goes to pieces... Is it possible to do more than simply manage to survive? If the whole structure of your personal world is shattered like a precious vase dropped on a hardwood floor, can those shards be gathered up and by some recreative miracle be put together again into an object of beauty and usefulness? Once Humpty Dumpty has had his great fall, are all the king's horses and all the king's men incapable of doing anything except lamenting as they consign his fragments into rubble? It's a good question. And I would say that the answer to his question is yes, unless the king is Jesus, right? Unless it's King Jesus who is putting things back together. And that's what this morning's conversation uh, is about. Um, and since every one of us, every one of us has or will experience brokenness in our lives, I think we need to hear this conversation this morning. Now, before we get to the actual conversation, we need to understand the context that it happens in. Uh, we, we don't know uh, specifically, uh, but... John 21 probably occurs several weeks after Jesus' resurrection. 
Uh, the disciples have seen Jesus twice already since his resurrection. And now they've gone back to Galilee, uh, back to the towns that, that many of them call home. Uh, Jesus had, had told the guys to go there and wait for further instructions from him. In verse 3, Peter says, I'm going fishing. And six other disciples say, we're going with you. Um, I'm not sure what women do, but this is what guys do. This is what guys do when when their world feels out of control. Uh, When my son moved to India for a year, right right after high school, I I kept it together uh, really really well in, in front of other people, right? Wonderful opportunity, I said. Uh, he'll, he'll do great there. Be good to have him out of the house. <laughs> but when the time came to put him on a plane, I was a mess. I mean, I lost it. And when Becky and I got home from sending him off, I went to the garage, got my tools, Becky said, what are you doing? I said, I'm changing the oil. (laughs) Now? Yep. I needed something to do when I didn't know what to do with what was going on inside. Now, we don't know the tone of these words when Peter said, I'm going fishing, and the other guy said, we're going with you. But it sure sounds... Doesn't it? Like, like Peter and the boys have kind of given up hope. It seems that Proverbs 13, 12 has sort of become the reality. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. What do we do now? And so the disciples go fishing. They're on the Sea of Tiberias, which is also called the Sea of Galilee or Lake Gennesaret. And they fished all night which was uh, common practice. That's when the best fishing was. And John tells us in verse 3 that they caught nothing. Nothing is going right for these guys. The, The one thing that they knew how to do better than anything else was fish. And they can't even do that right anymore. But then Jesus shows up. John tells us in verse 4 that at daybreak, Jesus stood on the shore. However, the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Boys, Jesus called to them, you don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Some of you have been on the beach fishing. When somebody walks up with a cheery voice, any luck? You know, after you've been out there all day and caught nothing. So you can kind of imagine how warmly these guys receive this question from what they perceive to be a stranger on the beach. And then to make matters worse, he wants to share some fishing advice. Some of you have had that happen before too. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. Maybe they did it uh, to humor the guy on the beach. 
Maybe they thought if they did what he said, he'd, he'd walk away and, and just leave them alone in their frustration. I've done that before, right? For whatever reason, though, they did it. And John tells us that they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Therefore, the disciple that Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord! Now, these guys don't recognize Jesus as he stands on the shore. They don't even recognize him when he, when he speaks to them. When they cast their net on the other side of the boat and, and snag this net full of fish so big that they can't even get it into the boat, all of a sudden, something clicks for John. That's the disciple Jesus loved. That's how he refers to himself in this gospel. So what clicked for John? Why, when they, when they catch the fish, does John suddenly realize it's the Lord? Well, uh, if you remember, back at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, back in Luke chapter 5, there's a similar story. Similar, but a little bit different. In that story, Jesus is, is standing on the shore uh, of the same beach uh, and, and teaching the crowds, and, and the, the people are pressing in on him, so he gets in Peter's boat and asks Peter to push the boat out just a little ways so that he can talk to the people. And when he's done talking to them, he says to Peter, row out a little ways further and, and cast your net, drop your nets. And, and Peter says, we fished all night. There's no fish here. Luke tells us that he did it anyway. And this time, their nets were so full of fish that they began to tear. And, and Peter calls the other guys, and they bring another boat, and they, they haul it in. And, and, and it's so much that both boats are on the verge of sinking. I think this is what clicked for John. I think this is why he recognizes Jesus. Same beach, same lake. Fishing all night, catching nothing. And then someone says, drop your nets on the other side. And they end up with this huge haul of fish. And in John's mind, this can only be the Lord. And of course, he's right. Peter connects the dots just after John does, maybe just because John has said it, and impulsively wraps his robe around his waist and dives into the water. He's about 100 yards off. Not the easiest swim when you've got a robe tied around your waist, but he, but he does it while the other guys row the boat in, dragging the net full of fish behind them because they can't even get it in the boat. When they got to land, John tells us in verse 9 that they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter got up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Now, from the time John wrote these words, people have been trying to figure out the significance of the 153 fish. Uh, And people have come up with some really, I think, wacky ideas of, of, of what this 
means. It's it's the triangle number of 17. For you who are mathematicians, maybe you know what that is. 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4, all the way up to 17, you get 153. Wow. What does that mean? I don't know. You know, some really wacky ideas. Here's what I think. I think it just tells us that this is an eyewitness account, right? John was there. He helped count the fish. There were 153 of them, okay? David James Duncan wrote a book called The River Why about fly fishing. My son Ben and I are particularly fond of that book. And in it, Duncan says this, like gamblers, baseball fans, television networks, and too many pastors... Fishermen are enamored of statistics. The adoration of statistics is a trait so deeply embedded in their nature that even those rarefied anglers, the disciples of Jesus, couldn't resist backing their story with arithmetic. When the resurrected Christ appears on the morning shore of the Sea of Galilee and directs his skunked and forlorn disciples to the famous catch of John 21, we learn that the net contained not a boatload of fish, nor about a hundred and a half, nor over a gross, but precisely a hundred and fifty and three, to use the King James. This is, it seems to me, one of the most remarkable statistics ever computed. Consider the circumstances. This is after the crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus is standing on the beach, newly risen from the dead, and yet we learn that in the net there were great fishes numbering precisely A hundred and fifty and three. How was this digit discovered, he says? Mustn't it have happened thus? That upon hauling the net to shore, the disciples squatted down by that immense writhing fish pile and started tossing them into a second pile, painstakingly counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all the way up to a hundred and fifty and three. While the newly risen Lord of creation, the sustainer of their beings, he who died for them and for whom they would gladly die, stood waiting and ignored till the heap of fish was quantified. (laughs) Such is the fisherman's compulsion toward rudimentary mathematics. They counted the fish. There were 153. John tells us in uh, verses 12 through 14, that Jesus invited the guys to sit down and have breakfast. And John tells us that none of them dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. And yet the fact that John says none of them dared ask him implies that they knew, but didn't quite know, right? Something was the same, but something was different. And John tells us that it was now the third time that Jesus had appeared to the disciples. Now, all of that is the immediate context that sets up the conversation we're looking at today. Uh, but there's, there's more that helps set up uh, this story. Uh, it begins for us back in John 13, where Jesus is telling the disciples that he's going away. Uh, John 13, uh, 36, Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. But why can't I come now, Lord? He asked, I'm ready to die for you. 
And Jesus answered, die for me? I tell you the truth, Peter, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. In Mark's account of this same story, Peter says, even if all these guys abandon you, I would never do that. Now, those of you familiar with the story of Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin will remember as Jesus was questioned and beaten and and spat upon, Peter was in the the courtyard of Caiaphas' house. Same complex there, right there where the trial was taking place. And three times, three different people said that they recognized Peter as one of Jesus' followers. And three times, Peter denied even knowing Jesus. And the third time, he even swore vehemently as he denied the Lord. And as soon as he did, the rooster crowed. In Luke's account, he tells us that immediately after Peter's third denial, Jesus looked across the courtyard at him. And Peter remembers that Jesus predicted this. And then Luke says that Peter went out and wept bitterly at his failure. When, when John tells the story in, in John chapter 18, he tells us that, that Peter and those who questioned him were standing around a charcoal fire. Maybe you remember that from just a few verses ago. Uh, anthracia is, is the word that John uses for this charcoal fire. It's only used twice in the whole Bible. First time is there when Peter denied the Lord. Second time is here in chapter 21. Jesus built a charcoal fire to make breakfast. They, uh, they, they say that, that more than any of our five senses, smell is the one that is most attached to our memories. It's a, it's a powerful sense that we have. Smell has a way of, of triggering memories more than any other sense that we have. And I wonder if for Peter, the smell of this charcoal fire had maybe triggered some horrible memories, some PTSD even, from that night a few weeks earlier. He's reminded of his, his prideful boast that even if all these other guys abandoned Jesus, he would never do that. He's reminded of that, that piercing, awful sound of the rooster crowing. Reminded of, of Jesus' gaze across the courtyard when he swore he didn't know him. Reminded maybe that he ran away and wasn't even there when Jesus was crucified. Peter, uh, in a nutshell, is reminded of his utter failure of being who Jesus said he would be, a rock upon whom Jesus would build his church. Now, John doesn't, doesn't record that anyone spoke over breakfast. I'm pretty sure Peter was quiet as he remembered all of this, maybe his head down as, as the charcoal fire stoked his memories of that awful night. And that's the setting uh, into which Jesus strikes up this conversation we're in today. It begins at verse 15, 
where we read, When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more than these? More than these what? It's a question that has puzzled people ever since John wrote this story. Um, Is Jesus asking if Peter loves him more than he loves his fishing business, the the boats, the nets, the 153 fish, maybe? Or is Jesus asking if Peter loves him more than he loves his mates, his, his friends, his fishing buddies? Could be. Or is Jesus maybe calling Peter back to that night when he boasted that even if all of these guys abandon Jesus, Peter never will. Uh, That one wins my vote. Uh, These guys that Peter thought he was more devoted uh, than any of the rest are sitting around this charcoal fire uh, on the beach. They heard his prideful boast that night. And I think that might be why Jesus begins this conversation with all of them there. It's not a private conversation here, which is a little embarrassing, right? Peter, you still think you're better than the rest of these guys? You, you really think you love me more than these guys do? And I imagine Peter answering very quietly, maybe almost inaudibly, Lord, you you know I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my lambs. And then verse 16, a second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Jesus said, shepherd my sheep. Wording's slightly different this time. Jesus drops the more than these part of the question and just asks Peter, do you love me? And I imagine Peter's response a little louder, a little more emphatic, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says, then shepherd my sheep. And then in verse 17, he asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was deeply grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Three questions, three answers. And, and over the years, there's, there's been a lot made of the, the different Greek words used for love in this uh, passage, in, the, in these three questions. Most of it, it seems, goes back to a book that C.S. Lewis uh, wrote called The Four Loves. Um, in, in my study, most uh, of the recent scholarship has, has just shown that the two words here, agape and phileo, are often used interchangeably. There, there doesn't seem to be um, anything going on here other than Jesus simply saying, do you love me? That's, that's the bottom line of what Jesus wants to know. Do you love me? The focus of Jesus' questioning is never whether uh, Jesus 
loves Peter still, even after this denial. Jesus doesn't say, hey, Peter, you know I still love you, right? His love is a given. And that's true for you today. There is nothing Peter could do to earn Jesus' love. And there is nothing Peter could do to make God stop loving him, to make Jesus stop loving him. And that's true for you. There's nothing you could do that would make God love you less. Okay? Paul makes that really, really clear in Romans 8, 38 to 39. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In the same way, the focus is not on Peter's forgiveness. Uh, Many Bible scholars assume that 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 truth maybe was established in Peter's first private meeting with the resurrected Jesus. We read about it in Luke 24 and in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about it. All of our sins, past, present, and future, were paid for on the cross, and that was true for Peter. Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us. I think this is east. And this is north. No, west. Sorry. Meaning this is north and south. Let me ask you, how how far can you go north? Anyone, real question. How far can you go north? North Pole, then what happens? You're going south. How far can you go east? Forever. They never meet. That's how far apart the east is from the west. That's how far God has removed our sins from us in what we will celebrate at this table. Uh, Jesus paying for our sins. They're forgiven. But if it's not about Jesus' love for Peter and it's not about forgiving Peter, here's what it is about. Jesus asks Peter three times if Peter loves him. And three times Peter says he does. And then three times Jesus sort of pats Peter on the back and says, we're good then, okay? I mean, you really hurt my feelings when you denied me, but... But since you're sorry, we're good. Is that what he says? Nope. Each time Peter responded to Jesus' question with, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus followed that up with a command. He gave Peter a new commission, a new job to do. Peter, it's it's time to learn how to be a shepherd instead of a fisherman. Time to feed lambs and sheep and look after them. Or maybe we could say it this way. You love me, Peter? Get back in the game. Come on. Get back to work. Again, this, this is work, uh, that not work that, that earns the love of Jesus or his forgiveness, but, but work that is the outflow of our love for him, of Peter's love for him. If any of us, 
any of us are ever going to do anything of any value as a follower and servant of Jesus, this is what it's going to be built on. Somewhere deep down inside, there must be a love for Jesus. And even though you've let him down, probably again and again and again, if you're like me, he, he wants to find that love. He, he wants to give you a chance to express that to him, to, to heal those hurts and, and failures of the past and then give you new work to do. Again, not to earn the love or forgiveness of God, but we do these things because we are loved and forgiven by God. Twice in this conversation, Jesus tells Peter something. He told him at the very beginning of John's gospel, when, when Jesus first called the disciples, he said to Peter and the others, follow me, follow me. And in verse 18, Jesus lets Peter know that following him is going to be costly. He says, I assure you, when you were young, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and others will tie you up and bring you where you do not want to go. And John doesn't leave us any room for speculation about what Jesus means by this sort of cryptic, verily, verily statement. Because in verse 19, John says, Jesus said this to signify by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. You see, hands being stretched out was a common euphemism for crucifixion. By the time John's gospel was written, um, this prediction had already been fulfilled. Uh, Peter had glorified God with his martyrdom by being crucified, probably in Rome, probably under Emperor Nero. There's some extra-biblical writings that claim that Peter requested to be crucified upside down uh, because he felt unworthy to be executed in the exact same way as Jesus. We don't know if that's true. And at some point in this conversation, uh, it's evident that Jesus and Peter got up to walk along the beach as they talked. And after Jesus told Peter how he would die, Peter looks back and he sees John. And in verse 21, we read that when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? Jesus said, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? As for you, you follow me. See, Peter, like so many of us, is... is a little dull, a little slow to learn. This whole business started because he was playing the comparison game, right? He was boasting that that he would follow Jesus better than any of these other guys. And here he's still comparing. What about him? How's he going to die? And Jesus basically says, mind your own business, dude. You just worry about following me. Man, this is like us, isn't it? 
We, we want to think that we're following Jesus better than anyone else. We compare in that way. Uh, or we think very lowly of ourselves, and I could never follow Jesus as well as this person, right? But either way, we're comparing. When God disciplines us or takes us through something hard, we want to know why God hasn't done that for that person. Why are they so special, right? I think God has one word for us when we do that. One word. It's spelled S-T-O-P-P-I-T. Stop it. John tells us in verse 23 that, that a rumor spread among the Christians that John wouldn't die before Jesus came back. Now, John is writing this in his old age, and he has to sort of squash this rumor that's going around. One of the earliest date-setting theories about the Lord's return. That's what's happening here. People are saying, you know, John's getting, John's getting on. I bet Jesus is coming back. I mean, like, it, he's really old. Jesus is coming back any minute because John's old, right? Um, don't say, set dates, okay? We can go back here and see, oh, that didn't happen. We can, we can go throughout history and see various times that people said, oh, it's going to be this year. Friends, Jesus is coming back. He is. When? I don't know. Jesus made it clear that it wasn't for any of us to know. Meanwhile, we are to do his kingdom work that he gave us to do. Jesus was simply saying here, and John explains this, that's none of... Peter's business, how or when John is going to die. He was just saying, if I want him to live until I come back, that's my business, not yours. Okay? Well, that's the end of the conversation. Kind of a weird ending to the conversation. But it changed Peter, you know? It really did. Maybe not instantly. Uh, Rebuilding a broken world takes longer than a conversation over breakfast around a charcoal fire. Peter will mess up again, and and God will have to confront him, sometimes in dreams, sometimes uh, with other Christian brothers. But But it seems that Jesus' conversation here on the beach set in motion a new trajectory for Peter. And by the time Peter writes his first epistle, he really is a rock. He says in 1 Peter 2 that anyone who trusts in Jesus will never be disgraced. I think that's a beautiful statement given the context of this conversation. A disgraced Peter who had denied the Lord. Anyone who trusts in Jesus will never be disgraced. I said that Peter must have been feeling the, the, the truth of that proverb, hope defers, makes the heart sick. You know, there's a second part of that proverb that we often don't quote. And it says, but a promise fulfilled is like a tree of life. And Peter discovered that. 
somehow in Peter's brokenness, his, his failures, they, they, they become a part of the magnificent person that he becomes. Dallas Willard says, God's restorative work can take a broken life and make it somehow more magnificent because it has been ruined. Because it has been ruined. So as I, as I close this morning, let me, let me just give us some take. I'm going to give three. There's so many threes in this story. I, I have to give three. So uh, first one is this. Um, we've all failed. That's why Jesus went to the cross. Every single one of us are broken failures whose sin has, has separated us from God. Some people think, oh, but you don't know my sin. Well, Jesus does, and I just want to say, you're nothing special, okay? You're, you're part of a pretty big club of people who are failures, all right? But I want to say this too. There's, there's not a person who has ever lived outside of God's ability to forgive. As Isaiah said, the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. And I would say, I would add you to the end of that. The arm of the Lord is not too short to save you. I don't care what you have done. But God isn't finished with you. I really believe this. God is not content to just forgive you. Sometimes we stop there. Oh, I'm forgiven. Yay. This story doesn't allow for that. If you love Jesus, he wants you back in the game. Do you love him? Then Jesus says, great. Let's get back on track. Let's get back to the the work, the ministry that I have set apart for you to do. That's what he said to Peter, and I think that's what he says to us this morning. And I want to say that to you this morning. You know, we got all kinds of opportunities around this church for all of you to use the unique ways that God has gifted you to serve. We need you. I once heard that one of the biggest problems in in church is that people don't feel like they're really needed. There's not really anything they can do that would... That's hogwash. We need you. As a youth pastor of mine used to say, that's stinking thinking. You need to think again. There's nothing that you have done that has permanently sidelined you from God using you. Okay? And the third uh, takeaway might be the hardest for, for a lot of us anyway, because I think something in us wants to compare ourselves to others. Um, either we think we're better than others, or we think we could never be as good as others. Peter was prone to this. I imagine that the rest of the disciples were too. Um, maybe some of them said something like, you know, I, I may have my issues, but I have never denied the Lord like Peter did. (laughs) Right? I'm not that bad. Or maybe some of them said, man, 
could never preach like that. I mean, that sermon, where did that come from? Where did he learn to talk like that? 3,000 people came to faith because of it. I could never do that. See, we, can, we compare. And Jesus would, would say to the rest of the disciples what he said to Peter and what he would say to us, don't you worry about what I'm doing in their life with so-and-so. You just worry about loving me and following me. Do you love me? Follow me and do the work that I'm asking you to do. Uh, in, in Israel, there are churches that have been built on important sites that, that commemorate various events from the Bible. I know some of you have been to a lot of those, seen them. Uh, on the southwest side of Jerusalem, uh, near the house of Caiaphas, there, there stands the church of St. Peter in Gallicantu. Uh, it's Latin for crowing rooster. It's a monument to Peter's failure. It's a reminder to every contemporary pilgrim that this is where Peter crashed. And it's a really popular site. Much less popular is a, a little church on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee called Loco Carbonum the place of charcoal. It it commemorates Peter's restoration to ministry. And outside of the small group of Franciscan monks who who hold services, there are few people that would go there. I was thinking about this, and I I wonder, why is it that we're more interested in, in failure than we are with restoration? I think this is true as we look at others. I think it's true as we look at ourselves too. And so even if we can't physically go to the Holy Land and and visit the place of charcoal on the north shore of the sea and and hear maybe in a different way Jesus' questions and commission, I think we need to do that internally. I think that's what is being asked of us this morning. Friends, you need to know Jesus is not done with you. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how old you are. Jesus is not done with you. And we need to remember that as we look at one another. He's not done with them either. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for letting us listen in on this conversation this morning. And I pray that As you have spoken to Peter, we have heard you speak to us. The truth is, Lord, that we are far more sinful and broken than we even realize. We have denied you in so many ways. And we need to weep bitterly over that as Peter did, as you gazed across the courtyard that night. The other truth, Lord, is that we are far more loved and forgiven than we will ever be able to comprehend. For that, we are grateful. For that, we say we love you. I pray that you would hear our hearts say that 
to you this morning. So as we come to this table this morning, we're reminded that your love, so amazing and so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen.